Welcome to a special episode of Policy Today, a podcast from the Washington Research Council. This is Mary Strau. Um, we are recording this on March 28, 2017, and I'm pleased today to be joined um, over the phone by Rick Hess uh, of the American Enterprise Institute. Rick is a resident scholar and director of education policy studies at AEI, and he is out with a new book from Harvard Education Press called The Every Student Succeeds Act, What It Means for Schools, Systems, and States. Um, the Every Student Succeeds Act was passed um, just recently under the Obama administration and marked a departure from the previous federal education law known as the No Child Left Behind Act, which was um, grew more and more controversial as time went on. Um, so, Rick, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, thank you. Good to be with you. Great. So, could we start out just in very broad terms? Um, the the Every Student Succeeds Act is sort of a, a the most recent incarnation of uh, wide ranging federal law that began in 1965 under the. Johnson administration. Um, could you give us a sort of a brief history, and the, the book really does a great job of doing it, of, of how we got here? Uh, sure. Uh, back in 1965, United, um, you know, Lyndon Johnson uh, launched his War on Poverty. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the three pillars of that was uh, promoting educational opportunity. And so the Federal Elementary and Secondary Education Act uh, was intended to uh, provide support for states and communities uh, to provide low-income children uh, primarily uh, with educational opportunities. Mm -hmm. uh, so by far and away, the most significant part of the law was Title I, uh, which provided money for low-income, to, to support the education of low-income students. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the frustrations over the years was that nobody was sure if these dollars were actually making a difference. Mm -hmm. uh, for the kids they were supposed to benefit. So as you move through the 70s and 80s, uh, a conversation was how do you make sure the Title ones are uh, actually helping kids. By the time you got to the 1990s, there was a sense that it would be helpful to have some kind of, some kind of testing or transparency. Mm -hmm. And that's what you saw in No Child Left Behind back in, 2000, uh, back in 2001. Mm -hmm. When, in order to get their Title I funds, uh, which today account for about $15 billion a year, uh, or about 2 to 3% of all spending in the U.S. on, on K-12. Mm -hmm. uh, states had to agree to test kids regularly in grades 3 to 8 reading and math, once in high school, and then once uh, in elementary, middle, and high school in science. Uh, states also further had to agree that they would set a bar for proficiency and that they would identify whether schools were making satisfactory progress at getting kids to proficient. And thirdly, states had to sign on to a specific menu of interventions that they would want uh, in schools which were deemed to be not making adequate yearly progress. Mm -hmm. um, that was that was no child left behind. Um, over the years, uh, there was a sense that this accountability system of no child left behind was actually not working very well, was making schools focus far too heavily on reading and math tests. And the Obama administration started to give waivers from the, these requirements if states would promise to do other things that the Obama administration liked. Mm 
mm-hmm. most famously uh, these new test-based teacher evaluation systems, uh, and adopting uh, typically the Common Core. Right. Um, by the time you get to 2015, you had frustration with over-testing, you had frustration with what the Obama administration was doing, uh, you had frustration that Washington was getting too involved in micromanaging schools, mm-hmm. and in many ways, was an effort to unwind uh, what felt like some of the more troubling excesses of No Child Left Behind. Right. And I know here in Washington State, uh, a couple years ago, there was a great deal of controversy. This was before Every Student Succeeds passed. Um, and Washington State needed to get a waiver um, uh, from No Child Left Behind and to agree to uh, some teacher accountability measures. And it was an interesting, and you, t- you talk about this in the book, it was an interesting um, coalition of teachers unions and more conservative lawmakers who banded together to say, nope, we're not going to do this because it's too much federal overreach. Yeah. Um, you know, and you see a lot of concerns with this because Mitchell left behind had language that the, um, that, that the executive branch could waive provisions when it felt uh, inappropriate, mm-hmm. but nobody had ever imagined that you could use these waivers uh, <laughs> as um, aggressively uh, to start to require states to impose other conditions as the Obama administration, uh, it, 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 Obama administration did. And the reason they were able to do this so successfully was that China left behind uh, included the famous provision uh, requiring that 100% of students be proficient in reading and math. Right. Uh, and what was by that by? 2014. By 2014. That's a pretty 14. tall order. <laughs> and so what, what happened is states started to do, one thing they started to do was try to find ways to dump down their tests below oh. their standards so that more kids could be proficient. Yeah. Um, which partly, that, that's partly what gave rise to the Common Core, uh, trying to find a way to um, fight back against states uh, playing those games. But what, what also happened was it turned out by about 2011, 2012, states were identifying passing all of their schools as as in need of improvement. Mm-hmm. And so you had lots of communities where they thought their schools were just fine. Yeah, They were getting told, A, your schools are failing, and B, you're going to start imposing a series of federally required sanctions. Yeah, And at that point, uh, state officials felt a lot of pressure to get a waiver, which meant they felt a lot of pressure to sign on to whatever the Obama folks wanted mm-hmm. in order to get out from under the 100% mandate. Right. Yeah, um, it was interesting. In, in your book, you were talking about the switch from, the, from No Child Left Behind um, and its previous incarnations to the Every Student Succeeds Act as um, replacing bureaucratic excess with decentralized, empowered, and accountable problem-solving. And also, you talked about the fact that a ha- you said a half century of federal rulemaking has forced state and local officials into a compliance mindset. And so it's more about complying with all these various rules than perhaps staying focused on the most important thing, which is educating the children. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, one of the, one of the tricks is you get well-intentioned people go to Washington to try to make schools better through policy, mm-hmm. but Washington doesn't actually control schools. If we lived in right. France or, or Cuba, 
it might be a different yeah. conversation. Yeah, exactly. But in the U.S., you know, all Congress gets to do is write laws which tell, you know, bureaucrats at the U.S. Department of Education to write a bunch of rules, mm-hmm. uh, which then tells, uh, you know, bureaucrats and state education agencies what they're supposed to tell local school officials and uh, school districts, what we call local education agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by the time it actually gets down to principals, much less the classrooms, you've played this four or five, uh, you know, later game of telephone. And right. even things that once sound smart and reasonable sure. wind up being confusing and frustrating and feeling like red tape. Yeah. And you, you, you do that, you know, you do that, you, you stir and repeat for a half century. And you wind up with schools where educators uh, feel enormously hemmed in mm-hmm. um, by, you know, by the way Washington and states have chosen to do business. Oh, sure. I, you know, I was reading in one of the, the book has a, a foreword and then a conclusion by you. And then it's um, a series of really interesting essays on different topics by experts in the field. And one of them talked about how, um, you know, there was such a focus on, getting improvement among students to, to go from, say, I can't remember what the technical term is, but from, you know, uh, low performing to higher performing. And then these kids who perhaps were lower performing and didn't m- perhaps didn't move up into the next section, but actually did improve, that wouldn't register with the whatever the bureaucratic um, uh, standards were. So there wasn't an incentive to, to help those kids, there was more of an incentive to get certain kids who were more near the borderline up into the next section. And so all these little things you wouldn't think about when you're up, when you're in Washington, D.C., and how, what effect they would have actually in the school. Yeah, that's right. You know, we, 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 you know these kids got, wound up getting referred to as bubble kids. Right. Um, kids. They were on the mm-hmm. bubble of, of getting over the proficiency bar. Yeah. And see what happened. So, Schools wound up spending a, a lot of time under NCLB trying to get kids who were, you know, close to being proficient but not there up over the bar because they mm-hmm. had the numbers up. Yeah. Um, and so kids who were way down, uh, even you, you could help a kid who was three grade levels behind make a lot of progress and it still wouldn't help your score. Yeah. And conversely, if kids were already proficient, it was real easy for NC- NCLB kind of encouraged those schools to take those kids for granted. Mm-hmm. And so you saw a lot of energy shift from saying, hey, how do we challenge and stimulate our kids who are already proficient and make sure we're pushing them forward? Mm-hmm. And there was, it was real easy, unfortunately, under NCLB for school districts to say, those kids are fine. Let's yeah. shift our focus over here. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that wound up. Um, creating a lot of real concerns for for both teachers and parents. Oh, absolutely! It's it almost it creates a sort of an unnatural setting. You're setting these sort of artificial standards. I don't know, or an artificial atmosphere of education. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, teacher surveys on this stuff. You would find that teachers felt, you know, a teacher's natural inclination is to try to move all of their children forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would see, you know, and you'd see this real discomfort because teachers were getting the very clear message that their job was to focus on getting the kids who were not proficient up to proficiency. Yeah. Um, and they felt, you know, you could see them wrestling with, well, what does that mean for all the other kids? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's a really tough situation. So 
the, the Every Student Succeeds Act has passed, and the, the goal of it is to um, sort of tur- turn around this excessive focus on um, federal mandates, if you will, while still um, setting expectations. So h- how does that work? How does the Every Student Succeeds Act differ from what came before it? So, I mean, for my money, um, it, it, it throws out the bath water but keeps the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is an appropriate federal role, um, as long as we've got Washington mailing billions of dollars out to states for Title I. Yeah. I think it's fair for Washington to say, hey, there's a condition for this money. We want to see how your low-income kids are doing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's useful to have some kind of framework where all states are testing their kids at certain points so that families and uh, taxpayers and policymakers can compare across states. Right. Um, I don't know if there's any magic particular subjects and grades, but I think the NCLB framework uh, tests kids once a year in reading and math in grades three to eight, mm-hmm. once in high school, and then in science, elementary, middle, math. I think it makes perfectly good sense. Sure. Um, the test, and, and, then, and then we break those out and report them for different income levels and you know, boys and girls and, you know, different ethnicities. I yeah. think that's all fine. Um, the problem that NCLB really you drove, I think, was when it said, all right, these test scores are going to be how we decide which schools are sufficient or not. Yeah. And we expect all schools to be 100%. And we've got some kind of magic Washington-based laundry list <laughs> of what do you do and what year you do it in if schools' test scores aren't where we want them to be. Right. What ESSA does is it keeps that first part, that testing for transparency. Um, it pretty much gets Washington out of the business of deciding how to tell if schools are making adequate early progress. It puts some guardrails. It tells states that at least half of it's got to be academic measures. Mm. Um, but generally speaking, it gives states you know, enormous leeway to figure out how to judge which schools are making good progress and which aren't. And then third, it gets Washington entirely out of the business of deciding how to intervene in schools that the states think ought to get better. Mm. Um, it turns those decisions, I think, quite appropriately back over to state and local officials who ha- can actually then be held responsible for whether or not they're helping their schools improve. Right. So for me, it keeps the, it keeps the part of NCLB that I think is good and healthy, which is a transparency, mm-hmm. but it gets Washington out of the business of judging the nation's schools or trying to micromanage their improvement. Right. So you won't see any more, uh, if I'm correct, the, the letters that would come out from the school district saying, you know, our school, this school has failed to make whatever the adequate yearly progress or as, or as uh, w- weren't they classified as a failing school? They would have to send out a so letter. They to failed, the- to, failed to make, yeah, failed to make adequate yearly progress. Right. Um, you know, it was technically called the needs of improvement, but yeah. nobody actually called <laughs> it. Um, so, stay, so, so schools might still have to send those letters, school districts might, but if they do, they're sending it because the state, the state has chosen to measure performance. And I think that's appropriate because sure. the problem with having Washington do this is nobody actually has to own it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, say, they say, here's some guidelines. You guys go make it work. The nice thing about states is if states are coming up with systems which aren't making any sense, uh, which are frustrating, you know, parents and, 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 and voters, well, then they actually, you know, 
they, they can ring the governor's office, they can lean on the legislature. Yeah. And so people, you know, the people making the decisions are responsible for what actually happens. Right. It's more closer to the um, much more local Democratic, small D Democratic representation where people, I mean, yeah, if, it's, be- if it's coming from the federal government, like good luck uh, calling up. Department of Education, good not good to, good not good to good denigrate good. DOE, but I mean, it's just so far away. <laughs> but, but, but also, you know, but also there's this fundamental thing that when you say, when you tell, when, when you call the clandestine's office, you go to visit, you know, and they say, well, you misunderstand. We're just creating some frameworks. It's really the state's mm-hmm. decision. And then you call the state and they say, well, our hands are tied. It's federal. Yeah. So part of the problem is NCLB created this, this loop where it was impossible to get anybody to actually take responsibility. Yeah. Um, whereas oh, now sure. it's much easier to say, all right, this is in state officials' hands. What are they doing about it? Yeah. Yeah, I was reading, I think it was in one of one of the essays in this book, um, that, well, okay, now it's like the dog who caught the car. So now <laughs> states really do, they're moving from this compliance mindset where, well, we just got to do whatever the feds tell us to. Well, we ha- are much more in the driver's seat now. And um, so, you know, for good or for ill, the onus is more on the states and the locals um, to come up with ways uh, to improve education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, it sounds like, and of course, every student succeeds is not without its critic critics, but that they're, the states now have a lot more flexibility to innovate and they don't have to go as much to the federal government to get sign off for maybe certain policy changes or reforms or new ways of approaching education or even the content of what they're educate of what they're teaching. Yeah. So, well, so a couple of, so a couple of, so one, there was some stuff to note behind, like there was a highly qualified teacher provision, right. Uh, which turned into a whole lot of new paperwork requirements in states uh, in terms of getting documentation about teachers. Uh, it was intended to speak to teacher quality. At the end of the day, it wound up really being more about even more opportunities for ed schools to mm, <laughs> force right. people to sit, yeah. uh, you, know, you know, in order to get paperwork. Yeah. Um, so th- so that, that, that went away. Uh, no, you know, interestingly, nobody on the right or the left was particularly interested in, in defending that in 2015. Right. Um, in ESSA, there's uh, some additional support for charter schooling. Uh, there's a program uh, that allows up to 50 communities which choose to do so to put all their federal funds together in, in order to support public school choice programs, mm-hmm. uh, giving them more flexibility about how those funds, they call it weighted student funding. Mm-hmm. Um, the, all of those funds together with state and local funds would follow the children to the public school of their choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the big differences are really just that in many ways, states felt constrained um, around a lot of these questions regarding accountability. Right. What do you do about struggling schools? And it's really in those areas where states have suddenly find that they have just enormous new opportunity to mm-hmm. tackle these things in a way that they that, that they think makes sense. At the same time, the Obama waivers that we chatted about a couple of moments ago mm-hmm. on speak you know, relating to teacher evaluation or mm-hmm. common core or school improvement strategies. Uh, those also went away with the passage of ESSA because states no longer needed waivers. 
And so states which were doing things because the Obama administration made them promise to do them, Mm -hmm. suddenly also found themselves free to stop doing those things that they chose. Yeah. Um, Which brings me to there, there have been qualms um, among, among others, among uh, uh, civil rights activists, advocates for uh, low income and minority uh, student communities who are um, a little leery of decreased federal role because they fear, you know, while some states may be very active and make in, you know, um, making sure that there's uh, lots of access and a lot of attention on uh, low income and minority communities, there's a concern that without that federal oversight, some states and some districts may, for lack of a better term, slack off. Is that yeah? yeah what, I mean, what's your ta- what's your take on that particular criticism? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a reasonable it's a reasonable concern. I mean, we've certainly seen, uh, you know, we certainly have a history in the U.S. of unequal educational opportunity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in communities and states. Uh, but there's I mean, there's two things going on. One is it's not very evident, at least to me, that Washington is especially good at making uh, schools get better. Right. So, um, uh, so ESSA, for instance, continues the requirement that we're going to test all of our children at certain points, mm-hmm. and we're going to break out those scores and report it so that we can see what's going on and keep that spotlight on. Mm-hmm. Um, so the real question is, is it important that Washington also tell states how to evaluate schools, tell states when to intervene? Um, I've seen no evidence that Washington is actually any good at this. Yeah. Yeah, they had, as you um, said, so, they have a half a century, and it it's not like things improved dramatically. So, so you know, so so so, so for me, the, the idea that well, states and communities have an unequal record, so therefore Washington will fix it. I'm dubious. Um, yeah. But more to the point, uh, there's actually a real cost when Washington steps in, which is one we talked a couple moments ago about this game of telephone. But when Washington, because Washington doesn't actually run schools, all it can do is write these rules for schools, is Washington's, when Washington tries to help, mm-hmm. you wind up creating lots of new requirements around how you can use federal funds, around mm-hmm. staffing strategies, around, and these things wind up getting in the way of people trying to make good judgments about how to best serve kids. Yeah. In their particular environments, because doing yeah. this in a rural system can be different from doing it in an urban system. Doing Absolutely. And, you know, doing it in, in, in Nevada or Kansas is different from trying to do it uh, in places where you have lots of college graduates on the coast, that you're, you know, that right. make it easy to recruit. Right. Um, so, you know, it's not that, you know, so, so, so it's not like there's no harm if Washington gets involved and doesn't know what it's doing. It's that Washington actually winds up creating uh, these impediments mm. that can make it harder for folks in states and communities to make the decisions. And Washington being involved also makes it easy for these folks to shrug off responsibility yeah. by saying, hey, don't blame me, blame those guys. Right. The, sort of so the situation where I, no, no one ex- can accepts responsibility, you can just keep passing it. Yeah, you know, we're just doing we're doing we're doing what Washington votes we have to do. So, yeah, for me, um, I, I understand the concern. I mean, the concern is entirely valid. Yeah, about the kids not being equally well served. It's just that I think, 
um, you know, there's no perfect solution. And I think the solution of having, you know, officials at the federal department of ed write lots of rules telling folks in states and communities how to serve kids turns out with experience, um, to probably do more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you note in your conclusion, I, this really resonated, um, you wrote, there tends to be a lot of certitude in education policy, but it's far better to proceed uh, with humility, which is a tall order for some people in, the, in, uh, <laughs> in politics and elected office, I speak from experience, and to be wary of assuming that more policy means that schools are getting better. Um, and you also write, there is and always will be a wide chasm between the noble aims of federal policymakers and the actual consequences of their policies. And to me, that seems to be, you know, the most important take, not the most, but one of the most important takeaways, not only from, from this book, which I would really recommend to people, but also to, um, as you note, the last half century of, of, of federal policymaking on education, that just not, yeah, maybe not yeah. being so certain of everything and just being open and being flexible. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the reality is, look, policy is good at making people do things and making people not do things. Yeah. So if you're trying, you know, if what we're talking about is raising, uh, raising emerging tax rates or paving roads, yeah. um, there's still, you know, there's still problems. But Washington tends to be, you know, okay at collecting money sure. or, you know, mailing money out to get roads paved. Yeah. But when it comes to something like education, what matters less is whether you do this or that than how you do it. Because it's about how adults and kids interact. It's about school cultures. And the reality is, it turns out that when you write well-intended laws in Washington, it turns out to be incredibly, much, much harder to have the desired impact on mm -hmm. what those adults are doing in their school cultures than people might wish. Yeah. Ain't that the truth? Um, <laughs> well, Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, this has been a really interesting uh, conversation, and for us here in Washington State, where we're in the midst of um, a big change in K through twelve policy and financing, it's um, it's especially insightful. Um, so, I want to recommend to our listeners um, Rick Hess's book, uh, along with Max Eden. It's the Every Student Succeeds Act what it means for schools, systems, and states. And we will have a link to it in our um, podcast description. So, Rick, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Great. And thanks to our listeners. And uh, we will talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.